This episode was recorded on Wajuk Noongar country and features voices from Menang Noongar country, Albany and Meningar Baduk country. Hi, I'm Beth and you're listening to Elements. Welcome to episode two of our second season, which is all about fire. Every summer, as bushfires tear across Western Australia, we're reminded that the place we live is very much shaped by fire. Within hours, these fierce summer fires can destroy the homes, infrastructure and bushland that took decades to establish. We can't completely prevent all fires from happening, but we can become better at managing them. In today's episode, Gianfranco Di Giovanni brings us a story about how data-driven science and First Nations knowledge can come together to create a world where instead of ugly scars, fire can leave marks that tell a story of care, collaboration and hope for the future. Let's join Gianfranco on his bushwalk. Whenever I walk through the bush in the Perth Hills, I'm always stunned by its beauty. The tall eucalypts, the wattles and bottle brushes, colours of greyish greens and browns, with pops of yellow and red, and that clay soil underfoot. This country, Wajak Noongar Buja, is a land ancient, with unique landscapes and incredible biodiversity. Special, because it's evolved to live and thrive through one of the most destructive natural things around. Fire. Fire was here long before there were people. And in the 21st century, just like the flowers and trees, people have had to learn to live and thrive after the flames have passed. If you drop a pin on the map where I'm standing in the hills and zoom out just a little bit, everything around me is considered bushfire prone. In fact... According to mapping completed by the state government, 93% of Western Australia is considered bushfire prone, which means being anywhere within a 100 metre buffer zone of vegetation that's likely to burn, which, if you're following me, is most of it. So if most of the state can be impacted by fire and most of the natural vegetation is likely to burn, how is it that we aren't covered in ash every single day? The old saying goes, you can't fight fire with fire, but you know what? You can. And it's one of the best tools we have. So this map here is just a, an example of, um, I guess, a, a sever- it's a severity map showing a prescribed burn that was done a number of years ago. Um, and it's a satellite-based severity map post-burn that shows the, the relative severity of the fire in different area or different parts of the burn. Um, and this particular burn had a, a variety of fuel ages in it. That's Michael Pozzotti, Perth Hills District Fire Coordinator, at the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions, or DBCA. So we're looking at a a, a top-down sort of topographical map of an area. Which area are we talking about here? Uh, This is out on Albany Highway, uh, east of Jarrodale. Tell me about the colours that we're looking at here, because it's kind of colour-coded in the area of the burn, and and it goes sort of from a blue to quite a strong red. So essentially it's a a heat scale of of colour coding in the sense that the darker blues are, are areas that remained unburnt following the burn. Um, through to the red areas that were the higher severity classes. So um, when you talk about fire and severity, you're talking about how much of an impact it has on the vegetation. So um, a low severity fire trickles through the undergrowth, has 
minimal impact to anything other than the, the, the leaf litter and the very, very low shrubs and grasses. Um, as you get higher severity, the, the flames will get taller. Um, the scorch and the impact will, will go higher up into the, the higher shrubs and the smaller trees, uh, right through to the top severity classes, which is obviously full removal of the canopy of the trees um, in very high severity cases, such as wildfires. There are maps like this for all of the state forests in Western Australia. Fire management is a data-driven practice. There's no set and forget. It's measured extensively by satellites, planes and on foot. And a plan is made based on the weather and the history of fire on that land where a prescribed burn should go. The general idea is that by starting smaller fires in the right places at the right times, you can change the fuel available and that fuel being plants both alive and dead, that are in any particular area. Different fuel loads have a big impact when the inevitable wildfire moves through. So that brings us to the next part, choosing where a prescribed burn should go. Because where you burn is important, and when you burn is more important still. When a prescribed burn is done, the aim is not to burn everything all at once. That'd be catastrophic, not just for plants and wildlife, but for the people nearby and for firefighters. The art of managing fires is all about making a mosaic. So you want to leave a certain percentage unburnt, entirely unburnt, um, as refuge and as um, um, just for ecological reasons, you want to leave a certain proportion unburnt. Um, and then the remaining parts that are burnt, you want a bit of a mixed class, but you want to tend to, you want to avoid the highest severity classes. So you, you, want to, you want to mix a mixture, essentially a mosaic. And for your fire management mosaic, you want both big tiles and little tiles to make a picture that looks a bit like iron filings scattered across a map. Well, it's essentially, um, mosaic burning is, is, I guess, at two different scales. You've got the individual burn scale where you want a mosaic within a treatment area. So in that case, you're trying to get, um, as I said, a, a predetermined or a, a planned percentage to remain unburnt and the remainder to be burnt. Um, and then within each of those categories, you want um, a, a proportion to sit within low, medium, high severity. As I say, prescribed burns tend to be, you want them weighted toward the low severities. Um, but then a mosaic is also, if you zoomed out to a landscape scale, it's the, it's the collective mosaic formed by lots of those treatments over time. So you have uh, multiple scales of mosaic. A burn plan for a particular area takes around five months to put together. It takes into account the type of fuel, essentially the plants that are in an area, the landscape, and that's weighed against ecological factors too. That's whether or not there are rare plants or animals in that patch. It also takes into account human infrastructure as well. Buildings, walk trails, roads, and more. And part of that plan is working out how to protect those things. That can be up to anywhere from you know, 50 to 100 pages of documentation that goes behind every single one of these burns. And then... Um, then there's the, the implementation stage where you actually try and uh, apply the, the fire at a certain time of year to get those objectives. So you've got your plan, you've got the go-ahead, it's good conditions for what you need to do on the day. How does it start? What do you do? The local district, the local patch will, will, will identify burns I think are suitable for the day um, and they've got resources to do. Um, that will then get put up to a regional level. Who will, or the region will then look at that and go, yes, we think these, uh, these burns are suitable. They'll put it up to a state level. Then there's a state approval to say, yes, across the state, these are the burns we're going to do today. Um, the, um, and, and, and part of that decision comes down to um, obviously forecasts, weather conditions, uh, measures, measurements of the fuel. Is the fuel dry enough? Is the fuel too wet, too dry? Um, uh, is it in the right stage? Um, and do all the other the, the, the parameters of the burn plan 
do they apply today? Have we, have we got what we're looking for? Um, once you actually decide, yes, you're going ahead with the boon, um, obviously we, we need to then gather the resources. So there's, um, you know, there's um, incident controllers, operations officers, sector commanders, down to crews and trucks and, and machinery to, to help make sure the fire can be applied and contained or kept within the box, so to speak. All the stuff you need for a wildfire? It's all exactly the same equipment you use for a wildfire, yep. So the, the crews and staff that we use are the same ones that will be fighting a fire in summertime. And then, um, yeah, burn, burns are essentially um, progressed. Um, small hand burns, uh, obviously all lit by hand, um, just with people on foot, essentially moving through the landscape. Um, um, starting in, Essentially, you're trying to start small individual fires um, over over an area with the intention that most of those spots will essentially grow and join up where some of them won't join up. That, that's kind of the, the, what you're aiming for. Now, how you achieve that um, can be through the use of um, of the moisture in the fuel. So you use, you're trying to find that right condition where it will burn but not too well um, and not too poorly. <laughs> it's kind of that that fine line. There's a, there's, a, there's a line there you've got to try and navigate. Navigating that complex process means burning is done at certain times of the day Certain times of the year, not in the wet of winter or in the heat of summer, but in the fringe seasons of spring and autumn. While today's process of fire mitigation is incredibly complex, it's actually a process that's been undertaken in this country for thousands of years. The first people of this land learnt when and where to burn and passed down their knowledge for generations through story and song. Now the information is being collected in databases and maps But since the very beginning, Aboriginal people across the country walk the land looking for exactly the right place and the right time to burn, taking in the weather and the plant growth and the history of fire on that country. These are the very same things that are measured in contemporary fire management practice. We're um, pulling out the dried dead stuff and putting them in heaps and burning them in small heaps, which is what we used to do. And hopefully they'll um, pull everything out from the trees and burn a small fire under the trees or um, get all of the dead wood out and put it into heaps to burn. It's a nice cool burn. It's a story that Merengar Bardock elder Lynette Knapp, whose family's traditional country stretches along the south coast of Western Australia, from Denmark to Israelite Bay, tells today. I often relate to a little pack that we used to burn on, and it was on this bank of a salt creek, salt river. And every every year when the first rain came, we'd go all with our aunties and the family go down to that creek and we'd burn our little mushroom thatch. And um, when the second lot of rain came, it wet the earth enough to get the mushrooms to spring up. And, you know, it lasted for quite a bit, normally a bit longer than most mushrooms, but it was an amazing bit of knowledge that we got from the old, oldies. But it was found and utilised in a way for us to survive. That relationship with fire in the traditional way starts immediately at birth. When a, a, a traditional baby is born, um, talking traditional, is the first thing that child touches is he's taken from his mother, from the Myers, out to the fire where special action is burnt, and it's rubbed all over him. And it's not washed off. 
So if you hear anybody saying they need water to wash the babies, in my country, that's, that's not right. So that ash will remain on that baby until it falls off. So to me, that's the beginning of the fire relationship to, to us. And it's, uh, my, my dad used to say, buy pictures of everything. And I believe so too, if it's done right. Got to be done right, and it's got to be done with the elders um, giving that permission. Ursula Rodriguez is a PhD candidate at the University of Western Australia's Albany campus. She's working on a project that aims to connect the data-driven world of fire management to the traditional knowledge of Noongar elders. While the knowledge of cultural burning has been passed down, Auntie Lynn and other elders are working with Ursula to gather and quantify what happens to that country after it's been burnt using scientific parameters. It's hoped by connecting the scientific knowledge and the cultural knowledge that future fire mitigation might be shaped by a common understanding. Yeah, so we're working closely um, with Ani Lin and her family and, and a few other local Nava organisations uh, to facilitate elder-led burning um, in the Fitzsterlings region east from Albany and we are recording um, some of the knowledge like Annie Lynn just shared with us um, that exists in, in elders' um, knowledge lines um, and also recording some of the ecological changes that happen on country after these elder-led bands, focusing on the cultural plant species that are important food and medicine species um, and also looking at um, introduced species um, to get an idea of the kind of follow-up management that might be required, like Ani Lin just spoke about. Um, from our perspectives, it's really not about doing one burn, it's about this continual caring for a place. Um, so trying to um, communicate that, I guess, to um, agency managers and private conservation organisations that might be interested in this kind of work um, in a way that they understand through scientific data. Um, and then we're also answering uh, a couple of social science questions um, through yarning circles and more one-on-one -on -one yarning, talking to all the different partners who are involved in the research. Um, so that's conservation organisations, researchers, um, scientists and Noongar people um, to understand what, what do agencies need to do to bring these two knowledges together? How do we make space for Noongar people and fire knowledge? In, in contemporary fire management in a culturally safe way, um, in a way that's appropriate and doesn't continue to appropriate you know, that people's knowledge or continue to colonise the space of fire management. Dr Alison Nulfitz is an ecologist who's worked with Auntie Lynn for years on projects to understand how Noongar people manage this country. Just like the scaled mosaics we were talking about earlier, there's another scale to consider when it comes to cultural burning. I think it's really important to remember that um, even though fire is really central to Noongar and other Aboriginal people's um, culture and just their relationship with, with country um, and, it's, and it's really big in culture it doesn't necessarily equate to um, the scale that we're burning on across the landscape now so um, I tend to think my understanding from working with Ari Lien and other Noongar elders a lot is that um, that even though 
um, in um, traditional times where people were able to access land and to manage it the way that they chose to, um, that they, that I guess we could probably generalise and say um, it was really frequent fire and small scale, and that was that was how people would build up over time this um, this landscape that had those varied um, fire patterns within it. Um, but now we're seeing like basically industrial scale um, burning in lots of ways. And, and I wouldn't necessarily say that that's based on science either. You know, there's certainly, I'm not, you know, there's certainly really good fire scientists out there and who are contributing into that space, but there's an awful lot that we still don't understand just about the ecology, particularly here in southwestern Australia. And um, burning on that sort of scale is just missing so much of the nuance. And here's Ursula Rodriguez again. An example of of that might be um, one of the uh, studies that we're doing in our project is looking at um, cultural plant species availability, like the resource availability um, across a sort of two kilometre um, traverse across a landscape and, and looking at how those species are occurring through through the landscape and also through um, a cycle of seasons and then looking at the um, eco- traditional ecological knowledge of Nunaar people and whether or not you would burn them at particular times of year and trying to understand just that really fine scale approach to applying fire. So we're, we're looking at this metre scale um, across two kilometres and, and seeing that you really have to have people with that knowledge on the ground observing all the time to be able to make informed decisions about applying fire that are culturally appropriate for Nogar people. So the idea is that some of that data will help um, rangers and other um, Nogar people who are involved in land management in contemporary times to to apply fire at that scale and to communicate to agencies that, that that's, such, that's actually the scale that people are talking about. Auntie Lynn says the future needs to be about listening. Well, I think Noongar people, I, I don't think it, I know it, um, all these processes that have gone on for many thousands of years was survival techniques. So we didn't burn just to be funny or silly or whatever. We burned to be vegetate. Um, we burned to keep our life skills going. So fire wasn't just burnt because someone felt like burning a piece of piece of bush. It was survival. We had to survive for many, many years. And being the oldest culture in the world, I think someone should stop and listen. I really think someone should stop and listen. We need to be allowed back on country on what's left in the country that we can manage. And God will always be led by elders. Elders that know. Sometimes you have elders that are totally can't worry, which they... <laughs> but, um, yeah, we need to get out there and start treating that country like, like I've been brought up to treat it like family. They belong to our tokens, we're totemic people, we belong there. So we need to get that out there and start treating it like that. Dr Lulfitz is hopeful though, that people are starting to listen and that things are starting to change. I would say that there's been like quite a 
a shift in the, um, certainly in the uh, conservation biology, ecological science kind of space where there are definitely a lot more um, ecologists, I guess, who are thinking about these relationships between, um, you know, really long-held relationships between Indigenous people and their country. So I think um, that's something that I've seen shift in my time, you know, being involved in this space. Um, so I think that gives me a lot of hope for the future that we are actually starting to really listen and to really tune in. For DBCA's Michael Pizzotti, that change, known for hundreds of generations and now measured by foot, plane and satellite, is the true story of fire. A continuous story that stretches far into our past and will continue for thousands more years to come. It's probably a misconception around fire is black and white. It's all or nothing. It's either burnt or it's not burnt. Whereas reality is fire is a continuum of change. So um, forests are not static. Um, they're not. It's not a case of um, this this bit of bush is good and this bit of bush is bad. It's in a continual a continuum of change. And um, and I guess there's a the the, um, the perception that that fire is an enemy that we're we're trying to to defeat. Um, fire is is a natural part of these ecosystems. Essentially, what we're trying to achieve is getting it as close to a natural balance. Obviously, we can never get it to a truly natural balance. We have humans. We, we, we're not going to be able to completely replicate a natural system. Yeah, fire is, is, a, is, a, is a tool as much as it is an enemy. Um, it, it, it can be good and it can be bad. Um, and it's about trying to, to, to manage fire as opposed to um, fight fire. So if we get fire management right, it will both be good for ecology and good for safety essentially. Fire was always for here. The fire is a natural part of this environment. Now we have a different context. We have humans, we have infrastructure, we have values, things that we, we care about and we, we do or don't want to burn or have burnt. Um, but if you get fire management right, um, you, you, you should be able to get the ecological impacts right as well. Thank you to Gianfranco and thank you for listening. New episodes of Elements will be released weekly for the next three weeks, so stay tuned. Next time, producer Lawrence Drown takes a tour of a local fire station to uncover the influence of fire safety measures in unexpected places, such as hiking boots and iconic architecture. But if you can't wait that long, visit us at particle.scitech.org.au for more WA Science content. The transcript and citations for today's episode can be found through a link in the show notes. This episode was hosted by Beth Maskell. Produced by Gianfranco Di Giovanni. Our executive producers are Michelle Aitken. Sound design was by Michelle Aitken. Alicia Catani. And artwork was by Gabriel Gibbia. We'd also like to thank our guest experts for this episode Lynn Knight, Dr. Alison Lulford, Michael Pathotti, and Ursula Rodriguez. And a special thank you to Michael Gatt. Lisa Larson-Henry, and everyone who helped make this season possible. This Particle podcast was powered by SciTech.